You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning and happy Sunday to the 10 o'clock gathering. We're in a series called Loudmouth, and we're looking into the, the life of Peter the disciple to learn some lessons for our own lives. And wow, today is going to be a very interesting passage. And so with your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Mark? Mark is the second book in the New Testament, the second Gospel. Matthew, Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. And go to Mark chapter 8 with me, please. I hope you have your copy of God's Word with you today. Or you maybe have a smart device, a phone with you. You can turn there, maybe share with the neighbor who's next to you. We're going to be in this chapter, Mark chapter 8, together for the duration of the morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let's leave it open there as well. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to pick it up here in verse 22. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him, meaning to Jesus, a blind man, and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he, the blind man, looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he, Jesus, sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... Jesus realized the disciples were were listening. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Don't close your Bibles. This is such a compelling story. It really is the high point of all of the gospel of Mark. It's the watershed moment in, in this gospel. Everything prior leads up to this and everything after flows from it. So Peter's confession that we read just then is followed by Jesus' declaration that he's going to suffer and he's going to die, but he will rise again. But that declaration leads to a confrontation between Jesus and, and Peter, but it's all set within this really odd framework of a progressive miracle of a blind man being healed to sight. So let's look at this unusual miracle one more time it begins here in verse 22 mark tells us that friends of this blind man brought him to jesus and begged jesus to touch him to to heal him so certainly by this point that the news of the miracles of jesus was was spreading 
Perhaps they had heard about what happened um, just one chapter earlier in chapter seven when a deaf man was healed by the Lord to hear again, or maybe right here in chapter eight, the feeding of the 4,000, that news had made it all the way to Bethsaida. Bethsaida, by the way, means the house of the fishermen or the house of the fishing nets. And you might find it interesting, especially later on in the story. This is the hometown of Peter. This is where the loudmouth is from. He's from Bethsaida. And Jesus takes, don't miss this in verse 23, Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and then leads him, verse 23, outside of the village, takes him to to a quiet place. So out of kindness and compassion and interest in this man's well-being, Jesus takes him away from the spectators, takes him away from the watching crowd. Again, don't miss Jesus' compassion His tenderness, his sensitivity here, he deals with the blind man in a way that is tactile. The language of the blind is touch. If you've dealt with people who are partially sighted or blind, or you yourself are partially sighted or or blind, you know how much a touch means. And the leading of of a hand. See, Jesus here guided him by the hand or led him by the hand. To be led by the hand for a blind person or even partially sighted is such a grace. And Jesus does just that. But the unique aspect of this miracle, of course, is that it takes place in two stages. Did you see this? In verse 23, Jesus touches the blind man the first time and Jesus asks him, do you see anything? And the man says, well, I, I see people but they look like they're trees just walking around. So after Jesus touches him the second time, Mark records this phrase in verse 25, the man saw everything. So in verse 23, do you see anything? Yes, I see something. Verse 25, he saw everything. Note takers, you might wanna write this down. All through the New Testament, blindness to sight is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. And we see these types of healings all through the four gospels. A healing of of a person who is blind and yet they now see is a picture of what it means to to become a Christian. You're not getting it, now you're getting it. You didn't know, but now you know. You were spiritually blind, now you can spiritually see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I I was blind, but, but now I see. So after the healing, Jesus sends him, do you see this in verse 26, not back to the village because that's where he would go to beg. A blind man would probably be set up by these same friends in in, in the courtyard or in the the town square and he would sit there with his hands out uh, begging for for alms, looking for a a handout. But Jesus says, you don't have to go back to, to the village, go back now to your home. Wouldn't it have been a fun place to be a fly on the wall? When this man walks into his home, maybe he's a husband, maybe he's a dad, he comes walking into the home healed, seeing, unblinded, if you will. But why did Jesus heal him in two stages? Was this an extra difficult miracle? I would think two eyes being healed would be a lot easier than 4,000 hungry mouths being fed just a few verses earlier. Certainly healing one blind man would be easier than raising dead people back to life. 
So just go back really quickly. We're in chapter eight. Go back to verse 18. It's not on the screen behind me. It is in the Bible in front of you. And look what it says in verse 18. Jesus had just asked his disciples, do you have eyes but fail to see? And the answer to that was yes. Yes, the disciples were blind to the truth of the full identity of Jesus. So even when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, there was still gonna be a lot remaining that was cloudy to them. I mean, even after Peter, if you will, got part one right, we, re- we find him a little bit later on re- reacting in such a way that it was almost as if he was seeing people, but they looked like trees just walking around. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Jesus basically says in verse 27, what's the word on the street about me? He says in verse 27, who do people say that I am? And Highland, you're a bright congregation. You're already there. Jesus knew what people were saying. He's God and he has ears. And I don't think this was Jesus being concerned like in some shallow way. Hey, what are people saying about me? This isn't Jesus saying, I sure hope people like me. Jesus isn't feeling insecure when he asks this question. And the answers were, verse 28, John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're, you're a prophet. Maybe perhaps they were thinking Jeremiah, Ezekiel, maybe Daniel, maybe Isaiah. This is important. People were, were thinking of Jesus as a prophet. No one told him that day in Caesarea Philippi that people just thought he was a good communicator or that he was just a good teacher or, or a gifted rabbi. They believed, people were talking about Jesus. They believed he was just like a prophet sent from God. In other words, Jesus' words and his works were beginning to suggest the supernatural. His words and his works spoke of this eternal dimension. Okay, so 28, 29, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet, but then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now look, at this point, these disciples have been hanging out with Jesus for two and a half years. They've been hanging out with the teacher for two and a half years and now Jesus is saying it's time for a test. It's time for for an exam. Two and a half years, they've been hanging out with Jesus 24-7. Two and a half years of countless miracles. Two and a half years of unbelievable teaching the most profound teaching imaginable, maybe the most profound teaching unimaginable, two and a half years to see everything they needed to see, two and a half years to learn everything they needed to learn, and recently, it even seems in the Gospel of Mark, that the power of Jesus was being dialed up just a little bit. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? By the way, friends, who you say Jesus is is the most important question you will answer in this life. It is a question that everyone in this room has to answer because if you do not answer that question in this life, it's too late to answer it in the next life. This is the most important question all sitting here today will ever answer. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Because everybody in Waco is accountable to God eternally for the answer to that question. And the right answer ushers you into everlasting life. The incorrect answer ushers you into everlasting death. And then the loudmouth, who always had to say something first, 
yells out, he confesses in verse 29, you are the Christ. I mean, Peter confesses exactly what the gospels have been demonstrating. But Peter's not reading the gospels. They're not even in book form yet, of course, but he's there in the gospels. He's living this. He sees the gospel itself in Christ. Peter comes to the conclusion that any good, faithful gospel reader in this room today would come to, Jesus is the Christ. But this is just the second time we see that word Christ in the gospel of Mark. In fact, the first time we see it is all the way back in chapter one, verse one. So we've gone eight chapters of Mark now without the mention of the word Christ. And here, Peter yells out, you are the Christ. Or in Greek, you are the Christos, which just means you're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You are, you are the promised one. You probably know this. Christ was not the last name of Jesus. His name wasn't Mr. Christ. Like it, Christ is, is, is a picture of what he was gonna do. Jesus was his name. In fact, remember, you will call his name Jesus. Now, the Lord is his ultimate title, but again, Christ defines his work. Christ defines what Jesus is gonna do. Christ defines his accomplishments. So why then does Jesus say in verse 30, hope your Bible's still open, Jesus charged them to tell no one. I mean, Jesus accepted Peter's confession. Peter says, you are the Christ. And the only thing that Jesus says is, don't tell anybody. Why not? Well, because Peter didn't have all of the answer right. Jesus says, don't tell anyone because this is not the full message. Jesus being a miracle worker is not the full message. Stay with me. Jesus being the Christ is not even the full message. That's why all throughout the Gospels, miracles happen, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And we read that and think, why? I thought we were supposed to tell everybody everything that Jesus has done. Why does he call them to, to silence? The answer is, they don't know the full story yet, and the full story is much better than the half story. You see, you can pronounce Jesus as Christ, but that's not the full message because it's missing the Gospel of the cross and the resurrection. And that is evident because of what Jesus says in the very next verse, in verse 31, and he began to teach them. Which means this now becomes the theme of his teaching from, from here on out. Jesus tells them in verse 31 that the Son of Man, he's referencing himself, must suffer many things. Listen, Highland, must suffer many things. I'm sure the disciples were thinking, he's gonna suffer? This man who is able to heal the blind, heal the deaf, raise dead people back to life, he's going to suffer. We're not gonna have a triumphant Messiah. Why can't we have a Messiah that just says nice things and who tries to help us just do better and, and be better and helps us look deep within ourselves to, to find some answers? Why can't we have a Messiah like that, a Christ like that? Because that wouldn't be the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus says, must suffer many things. A suffering Messiah? And the rest of verse 31, and be rejected by the elders, and be rejected by the chief priest, and be rejected by the teachers of the law? A Jewish Messiah in animosity with the Jewish religious leaders? And he's gonna be killed? A dead Messiah? How do you have a dead Messiah? And after three days, rise again. 
And they obviously missed that statement entirely. But let's be fair to the disciples. They were trying to wrap their mind around all of these things. Again, up to this point, this has been the miracle worker. Up to this point, people have been cheerleading this Jesus. I mean, he, he fed 4,000 people. Everybody loves free food. They're rejoicing in this guy that's, that's raising dead people, that this man comes who's blind, he can now see, and Jesus sends, them, sends him home. And so they're right now they're trying to wrap their minds around that this son of man, Jesus identifies himself as the one who would suffer and would be killed. So on the heels of, of this glorious confession that Peter says, you are the Christ, comes this incomprehensible news that the Messiah is gonna be killed. Shocking. So shocking that Peter goes from the hero to the anti-hero. So shocking that, that Peter goes from the spokesman of God to the spokesman of Satan. And we have these two colliding revelations. He is the Christ who will bring life and salvation and blessing to Israel and to the world, yet he will be killed by the people of Israel and the world. Now remember earlier Jesus who had taken the blind man aside in compassion now finds himself being taken aside by Peter in verse 32 in order that Peter might rebuke Jesus. <laughs> Peter is now going to explain the Old Testament to Jesus. What a loud mouth. He thinks he's a genius for getting the first question right. So now he's gonna to try to help Jesus get rid of this silly idea that he's gonna suffer and, and die. But Jesus sees, Jesus sees his disciples are listening. I, I personally think that that's in there. I think every word in the Bible is there with great intentionality. The reason that phrase is right there, I think if it was just Jesus and Peter, Jesus would have been a little kinder perhaps. But he realized that all the disciples were listening. Verse 33, so he rebukes Peter and says, get Behind me, Satan. That phrase, get behind me, we don't, we don't use that phrase, but it's a very simple phrase. It just means get out of my sight. Like if you're behind me, I don't have to see you. So he's saying, get, get out of my way. I do not want to see you anymore. You have now become a messenger of Satan. Satan is now giving you these words. You might remember in the confession of Peter to Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, when Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus says to him, that's right, but you did not come up with that answer. God gave you that answer. So now in the same way, it is the enemy that is giving this, this word, this rebuke to Peter to pass along to, to, to Jesus. And so he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, get out of my sight. Look at the rest of this. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You have set your mind on the things of man. In other words, oh, don't miss this. Peter, you don't see the entire story. You see people walking around like trees. I mean, Peter is confused, not about the person of Christ, but the plan of Christ. And Peter affirms the person of Christ, but he denies the plan of Christ. Basically, Peter loves Jesus as a powerful king, but rebuked Jesus as being a suffering servant. Peter loved the idea of, of power, but he rejected the idea of humility. And this is an indictment on Peter. Peter didn't want a cross. He was just looking for glory. Hmm. 
Americans are often more interested in a powerful Jesus with the government on his shoulders than a lonely Jesus with a cross on his back. Oh, Christian, speak up for the unborn and feed the hungry. And let's bring some kind of solidness to a chaotic border and let's care for immigrants like they are made in the image of God for they are made in the image of God, but don't co-opt Jesus to your political party. Jesus did not come to be the mascot for the Republicans. Jesus did not come to be the mascot for the Democrats. Jesus came to bring life to dead people. So we don't attach our lives to Jesus for some power play here in Waco. The only reason you and I have spiritual life is because Jesus suffered and died and rose again. We don't have a problem with the Messiah if that Messiah fits our expectations. But have you noticed Jesus never fits our expectations? He reorients completely our, our, our thinking about life, our thinking about him, our thinking about eternity, our thinking about our existence here on, on, on this planet. And so when, when a woman or a man comes to Jesus and declares him Christ, the promised one, we must also declare him Savior. Savior of our sin. Note takers, you can write this down, and I don't like this, but I need to say this. The cross undermines our self-righteousness. And people don't like that, and I don't like that. The only way I can come to the cross is with a broken spirit and a bended knee. I don't know about you, I can't self-generate righteousness. I can't be good enough. I can't try hard enough. And Peter was thinking, Jesus, we, we want you to be the king. We want you to be, to be the powerful one. We don't want you to, to die. We don't want you to have to, to suffer. You should not have to suffer. And Peter actually rebukes Jesus. There's a reminder to us that the cross always undermines our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, and the story of Peter reminds us here that our self-righteousness gets us nowhere. But Christ's death, his cross, his resurrection gives us everything we need for this life and the life to come. There's something else we learn in this story. I love this. Jesus said it. I hope you picked this up in verse 32. He said it plainly. Jesus said this plainly. Uh, you ready, Greek nerds? Parousia is, is the word in Greek. And it means crystal clear. It means unambiguous. And so Jesus is crystal clear about this, unambiguous about this. I am going to suffer and I will die. So again, note takers, the Father's will from all eternity was that Christ would become the substitute for our sins. The cross is not plan B. The, the, the cross was not God on, on the edge of heaven with sweaty palms thinking, what do I do now? This has been the Father's plan from the beginning. We see this even in Isaiah chapter 53. It was the Father's will. It was the Lord's will to crush this Messiah so that you and I can have peace 
so that you and I can have relationship with him. So the bad news that Peter was really struggling to hear is actually good news. Yes, Christ would lose his life, but he would lose his life for you. He would lose his life for us. He's gonna die in our place. He's gonna go and die on our cross. None in this room could pay for our own sin, our own rebellion, our own self-sufficiencies. So the Father's plan was to send the Christ, to send the anointed one, to send the promised one, to send the Messiah who would take our place and not just be the Christ, but also be the Savior of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so if you're here today and you think, yeah, Jesus, he's the sent one, the promised one, I believe that. I wonder if there's some people in this room or people in Waco or people in our nation or people in our world that are walking around and when they see others, they just see trees walking because they don't clearly see who Jesus is. He's not just the Christ. He's the resurrected King and the Savior of our souls. Peter finally understood that. But it took him 28 years aren't you glad that God is patient with us? He was patient with Peter for 28 years until Peter would write this letter that you actually find in your Bible. You don't have to turn there, but it's on the screen. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. This same loudmouth wrote this. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The loudmouth finally got it. May we. The Christ is not, Jesus is not just the Christ, not just the sent one. But Jesus desires to be and can be the Savior of your life. Would you stand with me, please, for us to pray together? Father, thank you for your word again to us today. It's living, it's active. Thank you, God, for recording this in, in the word for us. For 2,000 years later, we can see that, 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 that Peter knew the person, Jesus the Christ, but finally believed on the plan, Jesus the Savior. Father, I pray that today our eyes would be fully open our spiritual eyes completely open to yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, the sent one, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah. But that's just half the story. The other portion of the story is that this is Jesus, the Savior, who suffered, who died, and then rose again so that we could have life that lasts forever. Thank you for being patient with us as you have been patient with, with Peter. And Father, maybe even some today need to have their eyes wide open to the fact, Jesus, that you came to save. That you came is beautiful enough. That you came to save us is humbling, powerful news. 
Your death, your cross, your resurrection undermines our self-righteousness. So we surrender and we receive this grace. We receive this salvation. Open our eyes to see that you're the savior of the world, the savior of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, Christ, Savior and King, we pray. Amen. The altar will be open to this next song. If you want to come and just kneel before this King, come before this Savior, come before this Christ. If today you need to give your life to Jesus and he's become the Savior of, of your heart to save you from sin, to save you from the penalty of sin, some staff members will be here at the front. We'll be kind of be facing you. And if you want to come and talk to us, we'd love to talk to you about the new life that is offered to you, the absolute forgiveness offered to you, the abundant life offered to you in Jesus. Let's take this opportunity to kneel before the Lord, to sing before the Lord, and to come before him. Let's sing together. Won't you please come? <laughs>